Welcome to the Intellectual Freedom Podcast. Here we analyze politics, culture, technology, personal growth and development, and society at large through the lens of critical thinking and open-mindedness, not demagoguery and partisan hyperbole. I'm Dr. David Hopkins, Humanities Professor, your host and guide. So without further delay, let's get started. Welcome back to the podcast, and some of you may remember back to the late 1980s, early 1990s, when the Men Behaving Badly sitcom emerged. Well, from there, it kind of blew up across pretty much every genre, and all of a sudden, we have women behaving badly, college girls behaving badly, businessmen behaving badly. And it morphed, relaunched, reloaded multiple times, ranging from really simple, funny satire all the way to pornography. But the moniker kind of hung around, and so I thought, why not use it for a bit of fun today? I mean, politics are such an ugly game. I suppose it's better to laugh and joke a bit versus a serious alternative. But as the podcast podcast title states, Politicians Behaving Badly. Such an easy target from a critical thinking perspective. It's like an endless flow of opportunity to find fallacies in reasoning, lack of intellectual depth, and even utter silliness. That I thought, hey, in a slow day on what to talk about this summer, well, what a great topic to mess around with. I probably could change the whole podcast to politicians behaving badly, produce it daily, and never run out of material for the rest of my life. Oh, uh, by the way, you're not going to get money scandals, sex scandals, bribery, corruption scandals here. What I will discuss from the politicians that ran across my news feeds were politicians who should be ashamed of themselves for blowtorching and trampling on any modicum of rational, reasonable commentary, and instead are simply barking out divisive political rhetoric riddled with fallacies in reasoning and hyperbole. It's sort of funny, but I hope you can use it as a learning tool to identify the ridiculousness of them all. Look, of course, I get it. Flame-throwing rhetoric, that's what politicians do these days. They spout off at the mouth or in Twitter to score political points, uh, to go viral for their party, for their re-election. Yet, if people would take it for what it's worth, garbage political rhetoric, then the politicians are doing the proverbial pissing into the wind, bothering nobody but each other. But the problem is people mimic, meme post, talk the same rhetoric, the same propaganda that turns into yelling and fighting matches with friends, family, and online community. And that's not healthy for the country. In fact, it is incredibly dangerous. There's one more point of contention. I have two politicians to talk about today. One Democrat, one Republican. Why? Well, because both behave badly. And I'm not going to bury my head in the sand and pretend that it is all the Democrats or all the Republicans, because it isn't. If you happen to be liberal or conservative, it really is okay. 
to have some negative evaluation thrown at your party or person you may actually like. Doesn't discredit the person as a human being or your choices in general. These examples point out flaws or fallacies in critical thinking. By seeing real live examples, it helps all of us in our lives to sift through the BS. See, if we get more attuned to the realities of the propaganda that they speak and write, it diminishes the effectiveness of the rhetoric. And if politicians see a diminishing rate of return in their bombastic silliness, well, maybe they'll seek different tactics. Is it a pipe dream? Yeah, well, I suppose maybe it is. Actually, probably it is. But still, voices need to be heard that don't just accept the BS that they automatically spew. So here we go. There is such a thing in conversation and debate called nuance. Nuance seems to be lost in our modern world of discussion. In fact, in politics, it seems this word has been stricken from the English language altogether. But in fact, you and I can still use the word and practice understanding it. All it means is this, that we have a sensibility to or an awareness of or the ability to express delicate shadings of meanings, of feelings or values. In real life, as we all know, it is okay to still understand that not and, and we understand that everything is not just black and white. And in fact, many very complex problems in the world today have a very nuanced solution. Nuance is so critically important to fully and accurately understand a position. Modern politicians simply don't have time for it. They ignore it or they refuse it when it doesn't apply to their propaganda they spew, which, when you're talking about propaganda, nuance is something that almost never fits. Propaganda, by its nature, is very a, a very divisive tool to create very clear segments. One winner and one loser. There's no room to negotiate or to come to a rational consensus conclusion. In the simple minds of our modern politicians... They keep all nuance out of their discussions because, well, it's just more difficult to communicate complex details and they believe people in general, by their nature, won't be willing to stay focused long enough to truly understand. So you will see a lack of nuance in both people's example that I use in this podcast today. Oh, and by the way, today I'm only using the big hitters. Donald Trump and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, most well known as AOC. But let's start with the big kahuna of modern American politics, Donald Trump. Maybe the most loved and simultaneously the most hated figure ever in American politics. He turned the country and in many ways world politics upside down with his communication style. Quite frankly, nobody had ever seen anything like him before he burst onto the the scene for the 2016 election. So he is never, ever lacking emotion, high intense, high intensity language, 
So he was in Wellington, Ohio on June the 26th in front of thousands, as only he can draw, as equally as his high-energy charisma wows his, his supporters. If we're to evaluate his language from a critical thinking perspective without personal bias, he had a few moments in his rally. He behaved very, very badly from his transcript. I want us to be aware of two important fallacies in reasoning. He was egregiously guilty of abusing. And again, these are abused every day by pretty much every politician. But let's draw on these. And the first one is a fallacy in reasoning that's called the hasty generalization fallacy. This fallacy occurs when someone draws expansive, grand, huge conclusions based on inadequate or insufficient evidence. In other words, they just jump to conclusions about the validity of a proposition with some but not enough evidence to back it up. And they completely overlook counter-arguments. This is a hasty generalization. So, at minute 14, 14 minutes and 58 seconds into his speech, he said this, quote, other countries are emptying their prisons into the United States. You know that, right? They're emptying. They're opening their prisons. Why should they have these killers, these drug dealers, these traffickers? And they traffic in women, by the way, mostly. They traffic in women. Why should they have them? Why should they feed them? Why should they have to watch them? And they're very dangerous. Let's send them to the United States. They are. They're murderers and drug dealers, and nobody's ever seen anything like it. What's happening? End quote. Okay, so this is a picture-perfect overgeneralization. Have murderers and drug dealers crossed the border? Of course they have. To think otherwise would be delusional. Yet, right now, in this country, there are 33 million second-generation immigrants. If you take first- and second-generation immigrants... 25% of the entire U.S. population right now comes from this category, according to the latest census data. They are not all murderers or drug dealers. In fact, it's probably a tiny, tiny minority that fits Trump's description. Making such sweeping generalizations about in immigrants, number one, is just flat-out wrong. And number two, calling immigrants murderers and drug dealers in such a sweeping, offhanded way may offend a group that voted for him in rather large numbers last election, more than had ever voted for any Republican candidate in the history of the party. Just take Texas and Florida, for example. Both have huge numbers of immigrants, and he better be careful to modify his tone to keep them on his side if he does choose to run again. As without them, he will not win Florida or Texas. And if a Republican loses Florida and Texas, actually, if a Republican loses either of those states, they're not going to be president. The Electoral College map pretty much dictates this because they are the second and third most populated states and are needed to counterbalance California and New York. But anyway, that's politics. Notice the key here. No nuance. It's just a gross overgeneralization. It feeds a fire. It feeds a fear to a population seeing a border crisis, which 
to deny there's a border crisis, that would not be right either. But there's no nuance here between legal and illegal immigration. No modifying language to ensure distinctions are made between hardworking, ethical, law-abiding immigrants against, say, an illegal immigrant that actually may be a rapist or a murderer or a drug dealer. But to call all of them and to lump them all into one category, although it efficiently works to rile up a crowd, it's reckless. Effective in a rally, in a rally, but reckless speech. The other main, main issue comes in a bit, little bit later in the speech. At minute 15 and 46 seconds, he says this, quote, Just this month, a previously deported illegal alien in Massachusetts with prior charges for murder and many other things gunned down a man in broad daylight, shooting him viciously and violently as he lay in the street. He was shot four times, end quote. Then at minute 16 and 12 seconds, quote, recently in Louisiana, great place, an illegal alien who entered the country as an unaccompanied minor under Obama was charged with hacking a woman and their 15-year-old sister into very small pieces with a machete and stabbing two other people to death, end quote. These two examples prove the anecdotal evidence fallacy. It's an incredibly effective tool because this fallacy substitutes example, examples from someone's personal experience or some isolated incident. Arguments that rely heavily on anecdotal evidence, they tend to overlook the fact that one or possibly isolated instances can't stand alone as definitive proof of a greater premise. The anecdotal evidence fallacy is incredibly effective to sway an audience because, number one, the stories are usually incredibly tragic and awful as the two that Donald Trump cited. But secondly, once human emotion bursts forth, which when you bring in tragedy and terrible circumstance, fear and anger or some combination of the two almost certainly will come afterwards, it's very hard to become logical and rational when emotions are coursing through the body. So just for the personal effect of the tragedy as well as the emotions, anecdotal evidence is incredibly powerful. And if you don't believe me, just look back to the Black Lives Matter organization. They mastered this technique with the George Floyd killing. Right, that murder was tragic, uncalled for, disgusting and so that one tragic event led to a rallying cry and we heard it and we saw it all across the nation that all cops are racist defund the police and systemic racism is everywhere they drew gross sweeping conclusions from one very visual very tragic event. So we have all seen play out in society one of these anecdotal evidence uh, fallacies very recently. But back to immigration. The anecdotal evidence analysis, uh, the Trump supporter might say this, well, he only talked about two, but there surely are many, many more. Actually, if you evaluate the data, we should be able to go to the Bureau of Crime Statistics, just like we could go to validate 
that not all cops kill blacks. And we should be able to validate millions of deaths from immigrants because we have over 25 million first-generation immigrants in our country right now. And let's just say 50% of them are murderers. We should see in the data 12, 13, 14 million murders in a year from immigrants, if that was actually true. Obviously, we don't see that. Immigration is important. Every country in the world has immigration policy. And Donald Trump is right and good and valid to talk about immigration policy. We all need to watch who comes in the country, when they come in the country, how many come in the country. It's all vitally important to a country. That's, that is clear. But a balance needs to be drawn between getting the workers and citizens we need to be a strong and growing and vibrant country versus uncontrolled, unpoliced flows that are, that are rapists and murderers are coming in. Yet and yet, Trump went full bore into overgeneralizing the problem cherry-picking anecdotal evidence to draw sweeping conclusions. He abandoned all nuance to score points. See, if he, it doesn't come across as powerful in our modern political sphere for Donald Trump to say, you know, I really appreciate immigrants. I really, I, there are, but however, there are a small percentage of immigrants that are coming across that border uh, that are there for not good purposes. And we need to be able to screen them out. That doesn't come across nearly as powerful. The headline doesn't resonate. The crowds don't cheer. But that doesn't mean that that makes it valid and good and reasonable and logical when you just spout off immigrants are murderers and rapists. And here's my proof. This one guy in Louisiana, and this one guy in Ohio killed people. That is not rational, intellectual discussion. That is blustery hyperbole. But now that the Republicans may be mad at me, let's have a look at the other side of the aisle. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a House of Representative member in Congress. She's always an easy target for fallacies and reasoning. Uh, the one I want to go over dates back to March the 2nd. Uh, so it is dated a bit, but I chose it for a very specific reason uh, because this particular one uh, was found already to be 100% false. So let's have a look at her tweet back on March the 2nd. Uh, this is in speaking of the state of Texas. The state... Quote, the state just endured one disaster, worsened by selfishness plus denial of basic science. And now conditions are being set for another. Repealing the mask mandate now endangers so many people, especially essential workers and the vulnerable. This endangers the entire country and beyond. Well, of course, end quote. Well, of course... Hindsight is twenty twenty, but her assertion was proven 100% false. As the vaccine rolled out quickly after uh, this moment in March, cases began to collapse, deaths plunged despite the Texas removal of the mask mandate. 
the impending carnage AOC warned us about never happened in Texas, not even a little bit. AOC, along with most politicians, are masters of this fallacy and reasoning, appealing to fear. This type of fallacy is one that, as noted in its name, plays upon people's fears. In particular, this fallacy presents a scary future, almost apocalyptic, if a certain decision is made or not made right now, today. In this case, AOC's logic was, if Texas opens its businesses and borders, death will rain down upon everyone, not just Texas, but, oh, not even, not, not even just the country, but, oh, oh, no, no, not even just the United States as, a, as an entirety, but the entire world will be at risk because the state of Texas decided to open up its businesses and remove the mask mandate post-COVID. See how crazy and deep this can become? AOC does this daily, and it's flame-throwing hyperbole with reckless abandon all the time and never apologizing when she's grossly, grossly wrong. But she surely isn't alone. All of us need to be aware of this fear-mongering. It's, it's a highly successful tactic and very effective, especially for politicians who really want to keep things simple. There is something that draws people towards this appeal to fear. It's, it's almost an inbred desire to avoid scary and hard things. And politicians will pull that lever to trigger the American people whenever they can. We need to not fall for this fallacy every time AOC or others tell us the world's going to end. As well, it hasn't ended yet, and I've heard a politician predicting the death of the American democracy almost daily since Donald Trump burst on the scene way back uh, the mid-2000s. We come back again to the nuance of it all. Coronavirus is real, and it is dangerous, of course, but the solution even back in March of 2020, was reduced, 2021, sorry, was reduced by AOC to an appeal to fear. We need to all stay closed and save the world. Or be like Texas. Remove restrictions and the world will suffer catastrophic loss. Her message, of course, purely politically motivating, taking a shot at the conservative state Texas, was, quote, Shame on you, Texas, for killing people around the globe, which of course is absurd and was proven absurd on pretty much every single level. So we have two politicians, both political parties, behaving very, very badly from a rhetorical standpoint. The bluster, the hyperbole, the lack of rational and reasonable messaging makes sense in our in our current bobblehead political environment, but it is very corrosive and divisive for Americans to have a reasonable discussion on topics. We are modeling stupidity with this type of communication, and this is very bad. Hopefully these two examples give a glimpse in the very often used fallacies of overgeneralization, using anecdotal evidence to draw sweeping conclusions and appealing to fear. Now that you see them, I have no doubt you can identify them every day if you follow politics because they are status quo playbook fallacies. See, they don't avoid them 
They, in fact, embrace them and use them intentionally as they know the voting population falls for these fallacies almost all the time. So what if you and I in the country was no longer suckered anymore? Understand these politicians on both sides of the aisle for what they are. They're master manipulators with one goal, power. Look, I get it. We have limited choices in our elections. Many times we're choosing to vote for the lesser of two evils. But all of us can become masters of the techniques they use to manipulate us. So we go into all of our decision making on who to vote for with our eyes wide open and not hoodwinked into simplistic binary propaganda that they want you tied to. Far too many people get so bamboozled into the rhetoric that they lose sight of the reality of American politics in 2021. They somehow fall into this cultish belief that one party or the other is the savior of democracy and the other side is a den of thieving fools. What may have happened is you've been suckered into rhetorical fallacies that you're willing to divide the country into a them versus an us category. And when this strategy works, the only people that win are the political classes and the ultra-wealthy classes because they have the population at each other's throats because of the propaganda. And while this is going on, the corruption continues unchecked and unabated as we're just too busy parroting political rhetoric back and forth at each other or shutting each other out on social media or defriending and I'm not going to talk to you anymore and I you voted for this person, I'm not even going to associate with you. We get caught up in that rhetoric. And quite frankly, the politicians are very happy when you get there. So let's work to end this. They can behave badly, as badly as they want. And they probably will continue to do so. But that doesn't mean you and I or the country that we have to participate or even listen to that rhetoric. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. I hope you enjoyed our exploration of politicians behaving badly. If you did, click like or follow and you will be alerted when new episodes come available. Until the next episode, have a great day and a wonderful week.